Chapter Six of Mountain Adventures in the Various Countries of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Balm, Cambridge, UK. Mountain Adventures in the Various Countries of the World by John Timms. Chapter Six: The Garlandstock. Ascent in eighteen forty five by messieurs Idesor, Dolphus Osset, and Daniel Dolphus. All who have visited the Oberland and are possessed of the least observation, even among ordinary tourists, must have remarked in the midst of the numerous bold and steep peaks a mountain distinguished from the others by its rounded form, which represents a magnificent cupola of snow. This is the Garlandstock, 15,853 feet high, which stands right over the splendid glacier of the Rhone at the culminating point of the chain which separates the valets from the canton of Uri. I had several times conceived the project of going to study it on the spot and had conversed with the most experienced guides on the subject, but they, without combating the idea, had nevertheless never seemed disposed to encourage it not that they had thought the mountain too high or too steep but on account of its peculiar form you must take notice said jacob luthold to me that this is a mountain by itself it has an inclined slope of ice uninterrupted for more than three thousand feet which we could only scale by cutting steps the whole way in a case of necessity this might be done but on a hot day we should run the risk of finding these steps melted on our return and you know that to cut others in descending and backwards would be no easy matter. Still, there is one way of doing the thing, he added, after an instant's reflection. We might try it some day after a heavy snow in August or September. The brave Lutholt was not, however, to have the satisfaction. He died the same year, and for a long while no one spoke of the Garlandstock. It was in 1845 that an opportunity presented itself of reviving the project of ascent which seemed to have been forgotten. One day, when we had been interrupted in the course of our observations by one of those violent tempests which sometimes break suddenly over the higher valleys, Mr. Tuckett writes to the Alpine Journal in 1865, I left Geschenen at 3.30am on the 16th of July with Christian and Peter Michel of Grindelwald, and after a charming walk through lovely scenery and amidst magnificent specimens of glacier action, found myself at 6.20 at the little collection of houses called the Geschenen Alp near the Garlandstock. Here the curé was taking his morning walk, and I took the opportunity of a halt for breakfast to have a little chat with him. He stated that the Alp was inhabited all the year round, that last winter had been a remarkably mild one, as the snow had only lain twenty-five feet deep instead of covering the chapel altogether and rising above the eaves of his house as usual. We were obliged to be to retreat, and it was not without difficulty that we reached the Grimsel. Hardly had we arrived at the hospice when the weather suddenly cleared up. To the tempestuous day succeeded a superb and perfectly calm evening, but the snow had fallen in too great a quantity to permit us immediately to resume our studies, and we met on the steps of the old hospice, 
and were deploring together that we were prevented from taking advantage of such fine weather when our principal guide he who had taken jacob lutholt's place drew me aside you remember what jacob said to you two years ago poor jacob if he could have been here now what would happen then i asked why we would go tomorrow where to the garlandstock now is the time or never he added for there must be at least some feet of snow up there if we set out early before the thaw begins we should mount without any difficulty and as to the descent why we would make a grand sledge party of it what do you think of it i went at once to consult with messrs dolphus father and son and after some consideration it was decided that we should make the attempt the instruments which we expected to want were packed up at once the provisions prepared and m dolphus brought out a roll of stuff of which he always had a stock that he might cut out a flag which was to float from the top of the garland stock next day the eighteenth of august at three o'clock in the morning we set out on the road towards the col du grimsel the company was composed of eight persons m dolphus Ossé, his son daniel and myself accompanied by five guides at four o'clock we had reached the elevation of the col the summit of which is occupied by the Le des mortes the sky was without a cloud and the chain of monte rosa appeared like an immense fire of red-hot coals in the brilliant morning tints whilst the lower chains allowed us to see over their valleys that transparent halo which our celebrated landscape painter calame has so happily depicted in the splendid painting of monte rosa which is so much admired in the museum of neufchatel from the first plateau we descended by an easy slope through a somewhat steep one onto the upper part of the glacier of the rhone which we crossed without any difficulty taking care however to attach ourselves to one another on account of the crevasses hidden by the fresh snow the glacier once crossed we soon reached the mass of the garlandstock itself directing our steps zigzag towards the lower part of the ridge the snow was frozen and only yielded an inch or two under our feet without causing any fatigue it just gave way enough to afford secure footing it was not ten o'clock when we reached the depression in question which we have designated by the name of the col de garland the view which one has from this point is imposing it embraces on one side the great chain of the finsterahorn and its deep valleys on the other the upper part of the valley of rialp which is passed through in going from andermatt to la furca we took our way at eleven o'clock towards the culminating point ascending a very gentle slope along the ridge but keeping a certain distance from the edge for we had observed that in the line of the principal declivity the snow overhung the edge of the wall of rocks in several places never has any ascent of a high mountain been effected more easily and merrily than this we might have been taken for a troop of schoolboys going up the ney or the chasseral rather than for a party of naturalists making the conquest of a virgin peak of the alps on reaching the top i gave way to monsieur dolphus junior that he might have the satisfaction of planting the standard and taking possession in some sort in the name of science of a point on which the foot of man had not yet trodden in a picturesque point of view we had occasion to verify once more the truth of a remark which we had often made 
for we were more than ever convinced that the charm of the views from great elevations consist much more in the details of the nearer points of interest than in the extent of the panorama which lies beneath the eye that which fascinates is the sublime chaos of sharp ridges and pointed peaks in the midst of the vast fields of snow of broken arches and detached pieces out of which the most experienced eye seeks in vain to reconstruct the original chain then there are the contrasts of light and shade which set these objects off in high relief here was first that deep crevasse of the valley of the Aar, and that other not less sombre in which the rhone plays its first frolics on leaving the glacier then on the plateau between the two valleys were those two rounded rocks stretching out their polished surfaces the witnesses of the ancient abodes of glaciers there were lastly a little further on the giants of the alps with their steep sides and toothed and rugged summits seeming like old acquaintances who recalled to us the happiest moments of our alpine life amongst others the schreckhorn on the top of which we still perceive the staff of the standard which i had planted there in eighteen forty two with my friend escher de la linth and a little further on to the right the three twin peaks of the wetterhorn which we have visited together in the preceding year and of which one the rosenhorn also retained tokens of our visit we found ourselves further surrounded with the same guides who had accompanied us up those different mountains and who enjoyed not less than ourselves this grand spectacle they found above all a great charm in recalling to each other and to us all the incidents of our different ascents from the jungfrau to the garlandstock and in reviewing the difficulties encountered and the dangers which we had run on each of these summits it was nearly one o'clock when we set off again the snow was considerably softened on the declivities exposed to the sun so much so that we sank knee-deep into it on one side the slope was not sufficient in the direction which we had to go to permit us to slide we wanted as the guide said horses to the sledge an expression which they use when they take their masters by the legs and run down the side of a mountain with them we were now approaching the place where we had reason to believe that the snow sloped over the rocks so we took care for greater safety to follow exactly our morning's track we marched in a file to the guide yaum being at the head of the column i followed him at some paces back then came monsieur dolphus junior and after him three other guides and at some distance behind monsieur dolphus senior accompanied by the fifth guide merry and light-hearted we chatted about our good fortune and about the surprise which the sight of our standard would cause to the tourists and guides of the oberland as it floated on the summit of the inaccessible peak of the garlandstock when all at once i saw a fissure in the ground open before me and split with the rapidity of lightning i shall have ever before my mind's eye the spectacle of this gulf with its azure walls though they only remained so for the twinkling of an eye the time it takes for the side of a mountain to sink the cleft which had grazed my left foot in splitting had passed between the legs of the guide who preceded me whether by instinct or by accident he had thrown himself on to the side of the mountain not a cry not a sound escaped from my mouth during this scene but when i turned to inquire of my companions i saw all faces horror-struck they were not there in full number at two steps behind me a stick was hanging over the abyss but he who carried it had disappeared borne away with the part of the mountain which had just broken off 
Monsieur Dolphus, who was at a little distance, did not immediately understand the cause of the agitation. He was going to exhort us to be prudent when he discovered that the party was no longer complete, and certainly in the presence of such a discovery the emotion of a father needs neither excuse nor explanation. The one who was missing was his son. Before we had time to collect ourselves, we were enveloped in a thick cloud of snow. This was, as it were, the dust of the fallen mass which came over us like a whirlwind. It would be difficult to say what happened to us while in these circumstances. We expected every instant while this was going on to see another portion of the side of the mountain to give way and draw us in our turn into the gulf, and a thousand plans and recollections rushed at once into my mind. What must then have passed through the soul of him who we regarded already as a victim? Little by little, however, I cannot possibly say in what space of time the thick clouds of snow began to grow lighter, so that they permitted us to discern some forms. Hope also began to rekindle in us when we saw that no new crevasses were opening. I then immediately went to the edge of the precipice and stretched myself at full length on the snow, having first fastened round my waist a girdle with which Monsieur Dolphus was always furnished, in order that the guides might, if necessary, draw me up again, if, from the weight of my body, another piece should detach itself from the side. I cannot describe the anxiety with which Monsieur Dolphus, the father, followed me with his eyes, or how many times he asked whether I did not see some trace of his son. At first I saw nothing except an enormous mass of moving snow at a depth of more than 3,000 feet below me. This was the mass which had fallen, which was precipitating itself like an avalanche into the valley of Gorshin, above Rayalp. After some instants, however, I thought that through the mist, and almost perpendicularly beneath me, just in the track of the avalanche, I could perceive a dark object. Was it he? I did not yet dare to believe it. Above all, I did not dare to answer affirmatively to all the questions asked by the guides. Soon, however, I had no doubt. It was my friend's hat and part of his shoulder which I saw. Another question, not less urgent, was to know whether he were living or dead. It was Monsieur Dolphus who asked me at this time. It would have been very sweet to me, as may be imagined, to perceive at this moment a sign of life in him on whom I kept my eyes fixed, and to be able to reply at once to this despairing father, "'Your son lives!' But how could I nourish such a hope?' It appeared to me that without a miracle he must have been crushed or smothered by the snow, yet still it was a sort of miracle that instead of being drawn down by the avalanche he had remained there, so near the surface, at about eighty feet below us. A few moments afterwards I thought I really could perceive movement. He was not then dead. The impression which this discovery produced may be imagined, but what will not be understood... What will scarcely be believed is the devotion of which one of the guides at this moment gave proof. Hardly had I articulated these words, He lives! than Hans Varen, the chosen guide of Monsieur Dolphus, precipitated himself over the edge of the crevasse. We all uttered a cry of terror when we saw him disappear. Happily, he fell into the snow of the avalanche only thirty feet from the top, and as this snow was very soft, he sank so deeply that it was impossible for him to disengage himself. In the meanwhile, young Monsieur Dolphus had begun to recover from the stun which the fall had caused. 
he made an effort to look up and when he perceived me at the top of the precipice his first thought as may be conceived was for his father the news that his father was safe and sound and that he had not been drawn down like himself restored his courage he tried to rise when he perceived that he had not the use of his right arm was it broken or put out of joint he could not tell yet but broken or dislocated it is nothing he cried to us since there is no one hurt but me how then did it happen that he had stopped in his fall at such a comparatively small distance the fact was that in this long and abrupt slope of the garland stock there was one isolated point of rock a sort of little rocky pyramid and against this that part of the fallen mass struck on which m dolphus was a portion of the snow remained there and in it he whom it had drawn with it in its fall if he had been in any other part of this great mass he must infallibly have been drawn down with the avalanche and would not have been long in disappearing amidst its gigantic heaps we had now to consider what means we should take to rescue m dolphus from this position and we did not exactly see what to do we knew however one thing which was that we were not going to return without him but our guides generally so calm in the presence of danger were completely at a loss now there was no way of effecting our descent down the declivity which the avalanche had taken it was therefore indispensable to draw m dolphus up again but between him and us there was a vertical wall of over thirty feet the edge of the crumbled neve and then a very steep slope representing a height of some fifty feet in order to proceed with as much method as possible we fastened a cord round one of the guides and let him down thirty feet to the place where his comrade varen was stuck fast and he assisted him to get free after which they endeavoured to descend by one of those tricks of which only the chamois hunters have the secret and which consists in finding the exact spots in which the snow is sufficiently firm to bear a man's weight they managed this by dint of address and patience and by literally clinging to the snow to reach m dolphus whom they had in the first place almost to disinter but when they had got him out they discovered with dismay that he had not only an injured arm but that his leg was also so much hurt that it could do him no service and how then could a man in such a state be raised up to an acclivity of sixty and sometimes seventy degrees had it been a descent the thing would have been impossible but there are always more resources for an ascent so our two brave men manoeuvred so well that they got m dolphus to the top of the slope they then fastened the cord around him and we drew him up to us taking care to pull the cord over our sticks which we had placed over the edge of the precipice we employed the same means to raise the two guides who arrived safe and sound at the top several long hours had passed in this search and these efforts to recover him whom we had thought lost when we were all at once more together again on top of the precipice the sun was already visibly sinking over the finsterahorn Monsieur Dolphus was unable to walk, so one of the guides took him on his back and carried him to the Col de Garland. It was there that we meant to take some refreshment, because then only could we believe ourselves entirely out of danger. E. Desor. End of chapter 6